Welcome to tonight's panel discussion for International Women's Day 2019, coming to you live on Radio Verulam 92.6 FM from the Sandpit Theatre in St Albans. This evening has been organised by Sir Optimist International, St Albans and District Club. I'm Jessica Chivers, CEO of the Talent Keeper Specialist, and we're really proud to sponsor this event. Now, I'm going to be chairing tonight's discussion, and I'm joined by a brilliant lineup of women on our panel. I'm delighted to welcome Claire Harvey, MBE. Claire is Director of Cultural Inclusion at Edit Development and GB Paralympian Athlete. Claire developed her roles in the CJS, Financial Services Authority and Youth Sports Trust. She's been a psychologist, prison governor and inclusion expert. She was awarded the MBE for Services to Diversity, Inclusion and Sport and she's travelled from Kent this evening to be here. Hello Claire. Hi. Thank you for being here. I have Chandney Hanif. Chandney lives in Luton, originally from Yorkshire. Good on you, that's me too. <laughs> She's 21 and the director of a fashion business called Urban H-A-Y-A. Have I said Heya. that right? Heya. Heya. I stand corrected. It's lovely to have you here. And mm-hmm. Chandney's our, um, one of our younger panellists tonight. Yeah. Looking forward to your perspective. And we've, we're now due to have Danielle with us, and I think she might slip in a little bit later. Danielle is a second-year law student at the University of Durham, where she's the college rep for, now, Duacast, the Durham University Afro-Caribbean Society, and leading the establishment of Women for Women International at the university. And she's originally from Camden in London. I've got Min Rodriguez with us, who is Interim Head of Diversity and Inclusion at the Law Society, and we've already started to have some really interesting conversations, so can't wait to hear what Min's going to contribute this evening. And finally, we have Dr. Laura Abbott. She's a midwife lecturer at the University of Hertfordshire, and Laura completed her doctorate on the experiences of being pregnant in prison and is widely published and recipient of numerous awards for her work. Welcome to you all. So we can now move on to our first question, and we've had many questions submitted for tonight's discussion, both from the listening audience at home and those that are here tonight. Now, my first question is, do women and girls have enough access to female role models, and how can we increase that access? And I'm going to go to Min first. Ooh. Well, um, well, I think... What would you describe or define as a role model? Because if your definition is broad, then half the world population is female, and therefore you have half the population of the world that could potentially be a role model. I don't, I don't have any particular role models as such. There are so many people in history that have been absolutely amazing but also in terms of the type of roles that I've had in organisations, I have met people that would never, ever see themselves as a role model, but they've had to deal with adversity, they have challenged the status quo, they have got themselves out of difficult situations, and they themselves are role models because of the things that they've done. And all of those people that I've come across have been a role model to me in one way, shape or form. Yeah, I think sometimes we think that someone is, um, you know, you are a role model and we recognise certain people as role models, but actually people are looking at our behaviour all the time and whether you like it or know it or not, you'll be a role model to someone. Someone is watching what you're doing, so be careful. Um, Laura, 
thoughts on that? I think that's, um, it's really interesting because you, you meet role models that aren't necessarily always visible. And the work that I've been doing in prisons over the last six or seven years, um, I've been doing a lot of work with the charity Birth Companions, and what we've been doing is supporting pregnant women in prison. And Birth Companions train up peer supporters who are themselves prisoners. And some of those women are incredible role models for, for other women within the prison system. So I'd like to think that you know, women championing women, it, it's not necessarily where we, where we will always see women on high platforms. Sometimes um, these women are fairly invisible to most of us. Um, and interestingly, I was saying before, I had a, a very um, exciting experience yesterday, rather nerve-wracking, where I gave um, evidence to Parliament in um, the Joint Human Rights Select Committee. And I received questions from one of my role models, um, who is Baroness um, Doreen Kennedy, and I felt very privileged in, in that situation. Um, so from, from women that I've met within the prison system and to women who have shown immense courage in public life, I think that, that we're all pretty much role models. And also our student midwives. I meet our future leaders of our midwifery profession every day, and I would say that some of them I learn from as well, as, as role models too. So, yeah. And Claire, what would you add to that? Um, so, so I agree and I disagree. Um, I, I think definitely, you know, there's, there's a great saying, which is be yourself because everyone else is taken. Um, and I think often we get into that thing where we see someone and we think we want to be exactly like those people and actually what we can do is we can take bits from everybody you know that every time I meet someone I take something that I'm in awe of them about and I can kind of build on that I do think though there is a fundamental lack of female representation in a lot of industries a lot of when you think about the education system there are some amazing women in the world you know but we're only just finding out about them. When they, we, they weren't taught in schools. We didn't see them in as many ways as we did. And I think when you add an ethnicity lens or a disability yeah. lens or an age lens onto that, it becomes even harder. So I think we have a responsibility through social media or through all of our roles to actually make sure we're, we're showcasing women, but not just women who are brilliant and successful, but women who have a story to tell and can help young women navigate the world yeah you know and, and I've got a view that I think sometimes we uh, look at um, particular people and they're great all-rounders or we see them as being very very successful and actually if you, if you, there are many more people who could be role models because there's something about them there's something they do there's one aspect of their life that we can think wow they've really nailed that the way they nurture their parent with dementia the way that they are a parent you know there are different aspects of people that we can really put on a pedestal Chandney some thoughts from you about role models and how can we increase you know young people's access to role models um i think with role models i agree with both min and dr abbott um i feel like um sorry you've lost your train of thought it'll come back it's fine i feel like anyone can be a role model regardless age color background ethnicity and so forth I think what the main thing is, is when someone believes that you can do something. So, for example, my managing director at Guidance, she has believed in me so much to excel and be the best that I can, just as Dr. Kathy Weston too. She she reached out to me and said, you know, we'd we'd love you to be on this. And 
you know, it's people that give you opportunities. They're the ones that are actually role models and they're the ones that will tell you of their downfalls because you, you can't be a role model without any hardships along the line. And it's them hardships that make you become a better person and not only a better person, but you learn through that and you teach other people. Mm. So I think, I think role models, it can be anyone and anything really. Yeah. And what about if I ask the panel, who, who have been role models to you and in what way have they been a role model? Min's already said, I'm not sure I've got any. Anyone got any thoughts on that? Claire? So, so I had my accident 10 years ago and I, I laid in a hospital bed and I was in a coma for nine days and when I woke up afterwards I was told I'd broken my back in two places and, and I would never walk again. And I grew up in that era where you didn't talk about disability. You saw someone who was disabled, you walked past, you never spoke about it. And therefore that meant that when I was trying to work out what my life was going to be like, I could see nothing. All I remember was that St Bernardo's box with the, with the little mm. girl begging. And that was my sense. And actually what I think we did successfully in the Paralympics was we broke down the, the fear of having the conversation. And we had like, the last leg on television where people could ask all those questions that they wanted to ask. And we would go out into the village and talk to people about the realities of having a disability. You know, actually, there's some massive advantages to having a disability. I get to the front of everything I go to. <laughs> my friend who's got no legs at all, she told all the kids that her legs fell off because she didn't eat her vegetables, which is <laughs> arguably a step too far. But, you know... I think it's about, you might see people around you, but unless you've got that connection, unless you can have that conversation, unless there's that safety of asking those questions. My pet hate is when you go to women's events and you see women who are hugely successful and they go, oh, I didn't even realise I was a woman until 10 years ago, you know, that have had no problems at all. And, and actually, that's really damaging because the women who are struggling will go, well, well, then it must be me. I must be really inadequate. And, and so we have to be honest when we're a role model it involves being honest and helping people learn the things that mm. we've learned the hard way yeah great point and actually that, that takes me on to another question so one of the things that I come across in my work um, particularly when working with women who are in organizations that are very male heavy not big fat men you know what I mean lots of men in the organization especially at the top is that they will say that that there isn't a role model, there isn't someone who I can see has already done this that I can look to. So my next question is around, you know, most companies have few women at the top, and what do we think are the barriers to women achieving their goals and aspirations? And I guess, to what extent do we think that having a role model at the top would fix that? Mm. I mean, like, oh, Chamley, go for it. You're ready for it. Get in there. Um, I think with um, the employment side of things, there's a lot of stereotypical views, so when you think the CEO, it's, um, it's, a, it's a man with a, with a suit and he's got a handkerchief and, you know, everyone thinks that it's a man that should be at the top. It's never, oh, I see a boss lady right at the top, you know, heels, dress, you name it, you know, she's, she's really doing a good job. And I think with the stereotypical view, it's that, that we need to establish that we can't keep on going on as if it's just a man that needs to be at the top. Like the company that I used to work for, Guidant, it... There's so many women that are at the top and they're, they're people that you can actually speak to and they're people that, you know, you can, you can sit down and have a coffee with. It's not they're cornered off in a, um, in, a, in a glass office and, you know, you can't disrupt them. It's all about having kind of an open-door policy and, you know, being able to speak to people. And I think that's, that, that's crucial in a workplace. 
And I think you're right that those senior people have to come and approach other people. They might sit there and there's obviously, well, I'm really approachable, you know, Mm. I've got an open door. But actually it takes those senior people to say, come and talk to me, what are your questions, let me help you. Definitely. Mignon nodding away. I have to say I agree. There is a gendering of attributes because, you know, people see leaders, that's a very masculine Mm attribute to have to be able to lead to be able to speak for others that you know if you're going to be assertive that's a very masculine trait to have however when you see women asserting themselves and they're told that they are aggressive Mm -hmm. if that woman is of color then it's definitely even more aggressive Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there is a gendering that can be compounded by other factors like ethnicity um, and I think actually that puts women off. Um, you know, there is another issue about women feeling like they are imposters, that they can never be leaders, like they're just pretending and they're just, I don't know, floating their way through an organisation and it's almost as if they're getting there by luck um, and forgetting that they're there because actually they're being assessed under completely different standards to everybody else, to, to the standards that men are being assessed under. And I think that, to a certain extent, women are doing that to other women. Mm. The standards are much higher that you're having to meet. Yeah, I see that. I see that in my work. Laura, anything to add? I think, you know, some of our barriers are, and again, coming back to imposter syndrome, are within ourselves, actually, and, and the fact that we... Um, sometimes you just have to be brave and just plough ahead and not be afraid of, of failure. And I think that's sometimes... Our, sometimes we're our own worst enemy in that sense, that we're, we're afraid of, of um, failing, of, of, of doing something embarrassing, of saying something silly. Like I'm sure we're all feeling a little bit like that this evening, thinking, <clears throat> what if I say something silly? And sometimes you do, you do just have to um, sort of be a bit courageous, I think. I think sometimes that's a bit of a barrier. And Claire. I, I want to debunk the Im- imposter syndrome thing a little bit, though, because there is mm. lots of research that says um, men suffer from imposter syndrome exactly the same as women do, and that there was a recent study done last year around covering, which is, do you hide something about yourself? Do you behave in a way that isn't authentic to yourself in order to fit? And 61% of people in the workplace do that on a, on a regular basis, and that's not just mm. about being a woman, it's about... Maybe you're an introvert in a real extrovert environment. Maybe you just, you're a man and you don't like football. You know, those kind of things. Um, what I see, and I've worked with a lot of organisations around inclusion and, and culture change, and what I see is the unwritten rules of success. Mm. We create environments and we have policies and we have processes, but in reality there is an unwritten route to success and there are unwritten things that get rewarded and unwritten things that don't get rewarded and you learn those things by being in the in-group you learn those things by those secret tips those bit like sir optimists you know those secret things that you find out that if you're on the outside of those you never find out and the reality is many women many people of color you know anyone that's different is in that out group rather than that in group and as humans we don't like people who are different to us Mm -hmm. No matter how much we like inclusion, let's do a quick experiment. Close your eyes for one second. Think about your five best friends. Think about your loved one. If you've got more than one, think about your favourite one right now. (laughs) Think think about the people that you really would go to if you're in trouble. And think about home and whatever home means to you. 
hold that group in your head. You can open your eyes now unless you want to sleep, in which case go for it. But, you know, that's your in-group. And the reality is for pretty much all of us, no matter how much we love inclusion, we surround ourselves and we trust people like us more than other people. And therefore, that plays out in organisations. And when you're at the top of an organisation, you want to surround yourself with people you trust and your natural reaction without cognizant thinking is to surround yourself with people like you. And that's what creates systems that work more for some people than others. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, the audience here tonight is, uh, is almost 100% women. And we were talking about female role models. You know, my view is that I think men, particularly at the top of an organisation, can be fantastic role models to women, particularly around, obviously, for me, a hot topic is becoming a parent. And I think that if we have a male CEO or a male finance director, whoever it is, it's a very senior male who is being very vocal about the fact that they perhaps work less than full-time doesn't happen a great deal, or that they are going home on time um, they're committed to family life and they come in late every Monday, whatever it might be, but those men can send a really strong message to men further down the organisation and to women that it is okay to combine your career and family in different ways. So for me, I don't think it has to be women looking up to women. It's people looking up to senior mm. people to see yeah. it's okay to do it like that. Okay, so moving on from employment for a moment, I want to go into the criminal justice system because I'm aware that we have Danielle joining us tonight from Durham University. You're a second-year student, Danielle, and so I thought we'd, we'd, we'd move into the world of law. Now, 46% of women in prison report having suffered domestic violence. 53% of women in prison report having experienced emotional, physical or sexual abuse during childhood. And 31% of women in prison have spent time in local authority care as a child. So my question is, should women be punished in the same way as men? Danielle, thoughts on that? Um, it depends on the situation and the circumstance the woman is in, uh, based on the fact that like, if she is in a situation where, like, obviously, we are encouraging equality and men and women should be the same, uh, but we also have to take into consideration, like, for example, family law, where women too den- do, do tend to be the carers. Um, so if she is in a position where she has like greater responsibilities so you have to take into consideration like where she is like if she could be like a mom or if she has you know ah so shades shades of grey depends on lots of things Laura given all your work what's your view on that um I I think that um, women already are treated quite differently in the fact that they're more likely to go to prison for a first offence than a man um and we understand that at the moment that uh, women are often having to serve short sentences um, of under 12 months, but we also understand that women are at really high risk. Um, I believe it's um, three times more likely to be uh, self-harming in prison. We had, in the year that I did my research, we had 12 suicides in our 
prisons. And when, when you think about how many women are, go to prison or how many women are in prison at the moment, there's around 4,000 women in prison at the moment. So it's, a, it's quite a high proportion of women and it really paints a very bleak picture of, of how women may be suffering with, within the prison system. And there's a lot of work that's being done to, to sort of challenge um, the short sentences for women. We understand that around 17,000 children a year are separated from mothers every single year. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge number of, of children that are affected. So it has ripple effect, especially wh whoever the caregiver is. Um, if you remove um, the, the primary carer from a child's life, it's not just the woman that's going to be suffering more. And uh, so I think, you know, we, we do need to take a gendered approach to our criminal justice system. Um, and I think from, from my research and, and what I was looking at specifically was quite an invisible group within our prison system. So pregnant women, we don't tend to think about within prison. Um, so, and, and the prison system is, is, is patriarchal. Mm. It's, it's set up and designed um, in a masculine way. And I found that with, with the pregnant women in, in, in my research, they were pretty, pretty much invisible and, and suffered in, in quite um, difficult ways within, within the prison system. Um, and something that is quite uh, staggering is that from the research that I've done is that we don't actually count the amount of pregnant women that we have. So we have an approximate number within our prison system. We don't know how many, how many babies exactly are born within the prison system each year. And what I would suggest that if we don't count, we don't care. So we need to audit and properly... How, how can that be so, Laura? Why, why, yeah. why is this... Do you have a view on this? I, yeah, I think I have a strong view that we need to um, properly audit and we, properly, we really do need to understand and know how many women, um, you know, it's not just pregnancy, it's, it's, it's um, any, if we can't get pregnancy right in prison, how can we get the health care of, of, of anyone right? I mean, it's a, it's a time in somebody's life that is so important, so we really do need to be focusing on, on getting it right for pregnant women, and um, I interviewed 28 women in my research, and 10 members of staff, and it, it's also when, when you don't have proper mandatory guidance for um, the care of pregnant women in prison, it's very difficult for staff to, to properly um, support these women too. So uh, it, it, it's quite a bleak picture out there at the moment, but from a positive perspective, there are steps to change. And again, it's really important that we understand more about small populations so that we can change and we can mandate for you know, proper policy change, actually, at the highest level. It's, a, it's right from the top. So. Thank you, Laura. Yeah. And I think, Claire, we were talking about this before we came mm. on air, and you might have a slightly different view. Yeah, so I, I don't think we should take a gendered approach to prisons, um, and, and that's from my experience as a prison governor in both the male and female system. Um, I personally think we should take a sledgehammer to our cr criminal justice system full stop. And I find mm. it interesting, actually, that we've, we've drawn out the data on the number of women who are, have mental health issues, have domestic violence, are in care, you will find the number of women and uh, men are exactly the same, but we don't think about that in the same way. We want to kind of punish the men and, and feel sorry for the women. Um, whereas actually there was a, a study done many years ago by a doctor called Dr Farrenden, who's actually my professor, who, um, who said that by age eight you can pretty much not 
predict, but there are very strong predictors of, of likelihood to go to prison. And actually what we need to do is pull people into our communities rather than push people out. You know, when you put a woman in prison for a very short sentence, the reality is you can do very little with them in the prison system. The prison system treatment systems are things that have worked in very specific um, sectors and have been lifted and shifted and applied to everyone, and, and we know they're not effective. But with the best will in the world, you can't put someone in prison and then let them out where no one wants to live near them, nobody wants to give them a job, and then expect them to be able to cope in society. And there was a poll done last year on, um, by the government that's, that said that 80% 80, 80 of people did not, would, would not want a prisoner or an ex-offender in their street or in their place of employment. And we have to ask ourselves some questions about that, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree, and I want to bring in um, Chanley and, and, and Danielle to a slightly different question now. So staying with criminal justice, 76% uh, 70, of women um, killed by men in 2017 knew their killer. And I'm wondering if you think there's more that can be done to help young women spot the earlier signs of abuse in a relationship. You're our youngest panellist. Chanley, you're 21. Give us your view on that. Um, so I think with the, um, the signs, I think you need to kind of assess the person. You know, your friends and your family are, peop are people that will be able to see signs well before yourself. Because when you are in love or, you know, when you do have um, a, a certain way towards a person, you are going to blindly choose all the positives, which is, is, is you're only human. You, will, you, you, will, you won't see that at first. But I think you need to kind of make sure that you are kind of like being manipulated and, you know, if you're being belittled or, you know, if you ever feel threatened about the way you're being treated or the way that you feel the person is coming across. Because, you know, if the 76% of people know that it is, know who the, um, the, the, the person that's hurting them or making them feel a type of way, you know, it starts off by little things as, like, verbal abuse and then it'll turn into little, uh, a little bit bigger, such as, you know, throwing a plate or, you know, um, whacking the table and showing anger. And I think when these little signs are being shown, I think it is, it, it's crucial to speak to someone about it, you know, a mother or, you know, a father or someone that is close because, you know, your parents will subconsciously be like, OK, I think we need to stamp that in, stamp that in straight away because the people that actually care for you and that are there for you, they're the ones that are totally going to see the signs well before you do. When you're in love, you're, you're blind to everything else but you know, the amazing person that you think that they are. So I think it's definitely something that needs to be analysed well before you actually go ahead and think that they are amazing or they are being a type of way with you. So you're saying listen to your parents? We yeah, like 100%. That. Honestly, the things that my parents have told me and I haven't listened to them. So that external <laughs> perspective can be really helpful. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And Danielle? Um, I think that when you're dating someone or if you're in a relationship with someone, you should um, consult, like, not consult others necessarily, but, like, other people should be aware of who you're dating as well. Like, it shouldn't be a secret thing. If you're dating someone, um, it should be an open thing. So, for example, your friends, your family... Um, that your close relatives around you should know and so like when they do see you guys interacting they will be able to spot signs and kind of help because uh, chiming into what Chani did say um, you are kind of in a bubble when you're in a relationship and you don't want to see the flaws in that individual um, and unfortunately
unfortunately, some this is not just a women thing. This, this is also a man thing, but just for the purpose of today, um, just wanting to see the best in someone that you are emotionally attached to, and then also like maybe not having the courage to get out of that situation. So it's kind of like a psychological thing as well. So just making sure that you are around people that are like concerned about you and that will be able to let you know like the truth like you know hold on i've seen this you know when you guys are talking it was a bit hostile or you know it felt a bit domineering so it's just important to have people around you so it's not just you two are in a relationship but like other people being aware of relationships as well is very important and and tonight obviously tonight has been organized by Sroptimus International the St Albans and District Club and we're raising money for two local women's refuges um so this is something really uh, important and uh, we wanted to talk about tonight so my 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 slightly older panelists then um what's your view on on this young women being killed by men that they know, what can we do to help young women spot the signs earlier that something is going wrong? Min, you look like you want to say something. I do, because I grew up in a household with domestic violence. That's how I grew up. And these things happen by stealth. Um, You know, uh, my father was the perpetrator and, you know, the violence was against my mother, but then it started against myself and my sisters. So we grew up with that. We knew no different. And these types of controlling, you know, violent behaviours often happen behind closed doors. Nobody else gets to see it. And that's how control happens, that you begin to even wonder if that's actually what's happening. You question your own sanity. Or the embarrassment is so significant that you daren't even speak those words to anybody else. So, actually, it's very difficult sometimes. And I often think, you know, I mean, that was happening to to us, you know, it was in the 70s, the 80s. Nobody cared about it then. Even though the police and the ambulance used to turn up quite often, nobody cared. It was a domestic incident, Mm -hmm. and it got brushed off. And those things still occur today. And actually, you know, there are, those are, are statistics of reported issues. How many non-reported incidents go by every single day where men and women are being killed or injured on a daily basis? Um, I think these things have to start at school as early as young people are starting to think about relationships with other people, about respecting each other as human beings and what is acceptable behaviour, you know, within and without of relationships. Um, so I think it has to be tackled at the very earliest point. And actually, then there's, the complexities of it are that, you know, as a victim, survivor, whatever you want to call it, of domestic abuse... You actually carry that burden with you for the rest of your life because, you know, reports and research suggest that if you witnessed, you know, um, domestic abuse or violence in your childhood, that you are more likely to abuse or be an aggressor as an adult. I have to live with that every single day, you know, to check myself that I've not become my father or that any relationships that I might have might display certain things towards people that might be construed as being aggressive. Um, that never leaves you so I just wonder had somebody at school noticed that my 
interest in schoolwork was dropping, that, you know, even that I was not engaging at school when I was having to go to school. Had somebody picked up those things at school, I might not, have, I might be, I might not be talking about these things now, 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah, it gives us all pause for thought, doesn't it? What you've in, what you've in, in, endured. And um, Kathy, you've got a, a question. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Whoops. Yes. Hi. I just wanted to make a comment about. I mean, I'm raising two little boys as a mum, and I just wanted to make it back, bring something back to this idea of both role models and how we educate our children about how to have a healthy relationship. And I was doing some research recently and was very interested in finding out, discovering that actually when it comes to, say, a subject like pornography, our teenage boys are the biggest consumers of pornography of all, okay? And uh, Childline did some recent research to suggest that children aged between 12 and 15 routinely, when they're uh, surveyed, think watching pornography is normal. Now, this is important because there is also research to suggest uh, that girls in particular are being coerced into acts that they do not want to participate in at a very, very early age. It would be shocking if I could tell you what I know. And it is this sort of relationship that teenage boys, some teenage boys, have with pornography is beginning to influence these early and shape these early teenage relationships. It is distasteful to think about but it is extremely important not to ignore it. And there is a matrix of influences around uh, young boys and also around young girls. And earlier we spoke about role models. I believe there are many multiple pernicious role models for girls out there. They have bigger voices than us. They are on the front page of magazines. They are helping girls see themselves and value themselves in a particular way. And that is hugely damaging when you twin that up with the values that many of our young boys are absorbing from some dreadful material that they all have access to on their smartphones. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Cathy. You know, on that note, increasing pornification of our culture and the sexualisation of young girls. I'm wondering um, to what extent women have been burying their heads in the sand and... Are we complicit in the objectification of women? Danielle. Um, I think there's two sides of this argument. So um, yes and no. Um, the yes argument is because um, like we live in a patriarchal society and so it's... No, hold on. Sorry. Okay. No, because... Sorry. No, because we live in a patriarchal society... And so, therefore, we are trying to seek empowerment in an oppressive, like, in an oppressive environment. So, it's a yes or no because, yes, we are trying to kind of be, like, agencies. Like, we're trying to have agency over, yeah. agency over our, like, our own body because not all women that are, like, you know, on, like, these magazines are doing it so that, you know, they can kind of just for male attention, it's kind of like trying to find, just trying to like liberate themselves and not be confined to, you know, just, you know, maybe like dressing modestly, like they want to actually do that for themselves. However, would they be doing that if there was, there was, if you remove the male gaze? 
So, like, if there was no male gaze, would they still mm. be doing that? And if they didn't see, like, other influences around them, also, you know, um, being able to receive any sort of capital um, based on how, like, you know, on their like, ex- exposure, like, of their bodies and stuff, would they be doing that at the same time? Because we can't, um, you know, be disingenuine and oblivious to the fact that um, these women, there's, like, a plethora of them that do... Um, you know, expose themselves, you know, sexually, are being able to get to places like losing, you know, their, like, bodies and stuff. So I think that we are complicit, but we're complicit in a patriarchal society. So we are kind of, in a way, in our minds, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. So, like, we have learned to love our abuser but trying to justify it by saying that we're empowering ourselves. So it's just like a, mm. it's a storm. Claire, you're pondering. I am pondering, and, and I'm, I, I'm still slight, I'm, because I'm old, I'm a little bit behind the curve, and I'm still thinking about what Catherine was saying, um, because I think what's really important about what Catherine was saying is when we talk about education, and I absolutely believe education is the starting point, We've only just brought in mandatory relationship and sex education in schools, and half of the schools are pushing back against it. We don't equip parents with the information. I remember my son, you know, I'm an inclusion warrior, and when my son asked me a question about sex, uh, I was just a bit like, oh, my God, who am I going to ask this to? You know, I remember sex education at school that was, I don't know if I can say this on the radio, it was about putting a condom on a banana, Mm -hmm. you know, It's reproduction education, and I'm a gay woman, so that was completely bloody useless for me. Um, (laughs) And that's what we... But we should be teaching people about negotiating power, to Danielle's point, that concept of how do you gain currency in society, where are your personal boundaries, how do you negotiate power in a relationship, what are the signs of a healthy relationship... That's what we should be teaching young people early on. And that's just not schools, it's not just parents, it's everybody together. Yeah, yeah. agreed. And I'd be accused by my children of saying too much. They say, don't they, that you should only mm. respond to children's questions mm. and so that you're giving the right level of information. You're yeah. nodding away. <laughs> I say, oh. absolutely, as a midwife, my, I've got three sons as well, and the poor boys have, have not really got away from any, any, anything ever um, to do with uh, sex education. And I, I think um, it's, I, I, again, you know, thinking about parenting and education, it, it, it's, it's very difficult as a parent um, because we, it, it's almost not that we want to have complete control over everything. It's that with, with all the, all, everything that's out there for our children, it's, it's very difficult to keep an eye on everything. Um, that, that they are viewing or they're seeing or whether they're seeing at their, their friends' houses. And you, it, it's almost something that has to be top of your mind all the time. And I think we, we do have a responsibility. But I also think meeting my son's lovely friends, I think a lot of, a lot of teenagers especially are turning away from the, the media expectations of them. Um, and, and they are seeking sort of different types of role models as well. And I think it's... It, I've been seeing that, you know, from my personal perspective, some of um, the, the, the friends that my, my children keep, they're, they're moving away from that too. So I think our fears can sometimes be sort of... Um, they, they can be exaggerated sometimes, um, and I think we, we need to trust our, 
our young people as well. So. I'm really encouraged by what you've yes. just said. Um, I, I've got a daughter who is, is 10, and I hope that she'll feel that she can talk to me about things. I'm wondering mm. what the panel, panel's view is on how, how do we keep our sons and our daughters talking to us about anything that might make them feel uncomfortable, and, and how do we make sure that they have a voice with the people they're in a relationship with so that they're only doing things that they feel comfortable with and they're challenging back if their boyfriend, girlfriend is asking them to do things that they just don't feel comfortable with. Ch- Chamney, are you something yeah. on the tip of your tongue? <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, with, with my mum especially, I, I'm very close with, so I'm very open with um, discussing friendships, relationships, you know, everything from the top of the mountain all the way to the bottom and I feel like not even just with mothers but I think there needs to be a, a big barrier broken down I feel like a lot of uh, say for example I'm, I'm a young Muslim girl and you know, there's certain things I can and I cannot talk about but I think with both my mum and dad they're very open so if I want to talk about something that you know may not necessarily be appropriate in, in, in a Muslim context they'll always be open to listen to me. And I think that's a big thing. You know, people that actually listen to your voice and actually take on board what you've said without a judgmental front, that's, that's when you know that there is a good bond. And that can, that can slide into with your friends, you know, with teachers, parents. There's no bracket to who you want to actually speak to. But it's when you're able to speak to someone without that judgment, that's when you're able to progress and learn that things may may be appropriate or may not be appropriate. And the only way you will learn is being told right from wrong. You need to experience them, yeah. But then when you're told about certain things, you are are a little bit more inclined to be like, okay, my mum's done this or my friend has done this, you know, maybe I should steer away from it. But, you know, through your own mistakes and through your own uh, experiences, you will learn. So I think it's kind of... I think it's a it's a big thing for for young people not to have that barrier up because when you do have that barrier up, you're not able to discuss the mm. big matters as like domestic violence. You know, if you're feeling uncomfortable in a relationship, you need to be able to tell someone at least to say, "Look, I'm feeling this type of way. What do I do?" Because you know, like I said, you know, moving on to the going on to the previous question we spoke about and you know the manipulation of kind of being in a relationship, mm. it's an outside person that can always see different to that, just as Danielle said, that bubble. Because when you're in that bubble, you see nothing else but that, that person or that thing in there. So I think it's a big, um, a, a, a big necessity to have that barrier down. And, and for, for me as a parent, listening to you say that, I, I hear loud and clear what you're saying is that, and obviously we are taking the slot tonight in the show for parents, um, is about listening and we will have views on what our children are saying and we will be making judgment calls, but actually if we can show our children that we will, we will listen and, and, and hold our tongue, I think, because it's important that our children feel they can keep talking to us. So I want to move us on now to health. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about sex. In the news this week, um, I read some horrifying stats about people not going for their cervical smear tests. Um, Two women a day are dying from cervical cancer in Britain, but the proportion of women aged 25 to 64 who go for smears is currently at its lowest 
for two decades and wondering what we think we can do about this. A national campaign's been mooted to get women to, to go. I've tweeted about it myself this week and my suggestion was, you know, how can we make some downward comparisons when we're lying there? My, my favourite is always to think, at least I'm not giving birth again, at least I'm not administering <laughs> the smear. But I know that for some women, going for a smear can just be a terrible ordeal, perhaps because of some of the things that they've endured in their life. Panellists, what, what, what do we think? How can we get women to attend their smear test? And again, I want to start with our younger panellists because I think we've got a particular problem in that age bracket. Danielle? Um, I think just, like, raising awareness. I don't think that... Because even whilst I was, like, coming here on the train and, like, reading the different uh, topics that would be brought up, um, and even just thinking about my own health, which was triggered by looking at the, the, the topic. Um, it's not a main concern to, like, keep up with, like, different tests at this age. Because I know, like, my mum goes to the GP, and I think she's mentioned this before. But I'm not sure within, like, my age range whether we are fully aware that we are susceptible to actually, like, dying from cervical cancer. Because... A lot of the times it's like there are other diseases like STIs and STDs, but not cervix cancer. Like that isn't a like a concern the way it should be. And the fact that two people are dying a day from it is, is serious. So just raising awareness. So if we put something on a train, something hard hitting, you're going to see that because you're on the tube, you're on the train. You might notice that that's going to be enough to wake you up. Mm -hmm. Chandney, your thoughts on that? Um, like Danielle said, awareness. Um, so I feel like, okay, it's going to sound weird, but whenever I go to the toilet in the mall, I'll see, like, the cervical cancer um, poster, which is fine, but it's not raised to everyone. I feel like, you know, a man should be able to say, you need to have that cervical smear test, you know, I, I'm just as concerned about your health as you are mine. Um, and I feel like even in primary school and high school, I never really heard about cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. I only know about it because of the toilets. Yeah. Literally, I know it because <laughs> yeah. of the toilets. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's not raised enough. Like, I only found out what a smear test was last year. Like, literally, I only found out what it was. And, you know, it's, it's quite, sad to, quite sad to see young girls, because I'm literally one of those. I, I don't know much about cervical cancer. And, you know, a, a little advert on the tube or in the toilet is only going to make you aware. You know, you, you, might, you might just go onto the website and say, oh, let's have a little look. But, you know, just as Danielle said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a young, um, young girl who doesn't really necessarily think, oh, I need to, need to check my cervical thingy, my bob. Do you, do you know? Yeah, I do, I do. Hey, and, and a bit of audience participation here. So I just want to show of hands from our audience here at the Sandpit Theatre. Um, who thinks that we need a national campaign to remind women to go and do this? Okay, so most hands have, have gone up. Um, now, without being too shy, I want you to put your hand up if you have been for your smear the last time you were, you were called. Who's been? So they're either really, really good in here or they're all lying. But I'm <laughs> delighted. I did flash the audience before we came on air today saying that I thought they were probably some of the brightest, most switched-on people in St Albans, given the other choice of things we could be doing tonight, and they're here. Fantastic. So you're, you're probably not representative, then, of, of the whole of the UK. Um, Laura, your thought, do we need a national campaign? 
I think we do, but I think we need to be sensitive as well because there's there's certain there's lots of reasons why a woman might not go for a smear, and and, and one of the reasons could be that she has a history of um, abuse or trauma in her life, and we make out that it's something that's so simple, so easy, but for some women, it's it's a very very traumatic, stressful thing. More the anticipation of going for a smear. Um, and we make it sound as if it's nothing, but for that for that woman, we need to take a, a maybe a different approach. So, I, I think you know we do need um, some campaigning, maybe, but we also need to be sensitive as to why women might not go for a smear and and not and not make out that it's something that's easy for everybody, um, and and have a, a sensitive approach to to that campaign if we do have one. And how could we do that? So how could we show that sensitivity when the thing comes, the, le- the standard letter comes from the, the GP or the, the central NHS unit? H- how could we take account of those women? I think we just need um, greater education. And, and so that woman who may feel traumatised or may feel a great deal of fear to, to know that she's not alone and to maybe just have a, have a statement. We understand that for some women this can be a difficult and traumatic experience. And, and if that's something that you'd like to discuss before you make an informed decision to whether or not to have a smear, because, of course, it is everybody's choice. Um, we don't have to have this. It's a choice... Um, um, for a woman, so we need to make make it quite clear that it is her choice, and, and empower her to make the decision for herself, rather than tell her that she it's something that she has to do. Um, I think that you know, that that's the that's the key there, really. Min, I don't think it being called a smear helps it. <laughs> Agree. Because it makes it sound so dirty, and, and I think that really is probably really very mm. off-putting, uh, not just to young women. But to the older generations, the, uh, it, it just, just does not sound very appealing. I think the whole massive marketing campaign needs to be done just to freshen up a bit, literally. Me, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Um, Claire, so given all that well thought out, I feel like a really shallow person right now by saying this. But the reality is for me, if we want people to do something, we've got to make it easy. You know, you ring up the doctors and you've got a six-week wait and you can only be between this time and this time. And, you know, I I work all over the country. My doctor's opens at the most ridiculous time. I think it opens for 10 minutes a day. That's what it feels like. (laughs) Um, You know, you've got to plan your thing months in advance. I I, I fail to believe with modern society, we're fast. It's a fast-paced society. People are busier than ever before. People have responsibilities. The reality is things like that will often fall off. So if we want people to do it, we've got to go to people and we've got to think about times and places where, you know, let's face it, it looks like a blooming McDonald's straw thing, doesn't it? It's not, it's not masses of equipment. So let's go and let's get out to places where people can access it easier. But also let's build trust. A lot of, pe- a lot of communities don't have trust in doctors. A lot of communities, there are cultural, religious barriers to, to even going through that door, let alone going through the test. So... Let's build some trust and let's not just have that, here's the form that goes, go and do it. Let's, let's be a bit smarter about it. Yeah, good point. Um, so I want to move now to, 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 to you guys indulging me, which um, about International Women's Day, I shared with the audience before we came on air that I wrote a letter to the Times, whether it is published tomorrow, we, we, we don't know, it remains to be seen, about how large organisations often ask women to contribute their time for free on International Women's Day to inspire their employees. And I'm wondering whether the panel believes that women who say yes to doing work for free 
whether on International Women's Day or um, other times, are undermining their own talents and creating a culture where free work is the norm for women. And I'd like to start with you, Min. You're sitting there looking really smiley and happy and wanting to talk about this. I say no. <laughs> um, but it depends on, on who's asking. You know, if it's a voluntary sector organisation yeah. that have limited uh, resources, then, of course, I, I have done work for free, and I think that's actually giving back to the community, but not where there are corporates have, have significant budgets mm-hmm. and are basically exploiting women, potentially, uh, to give up their time and skills um, where they, you could be earning money somewhere else. Yeah, nice shot answer. Agreed with you on that. Claire? Um, I agree with... Depends. I think... I don't think there is one system that fits all. I think it's, it's about strategic opportunities. It is about where, where will I have impact. And I think it's for every woman to decide where their personal... Some women can do it for free and it has no, it has no impact on them. They're, not, they're in a financial position to do that. And that's great. And I think we should allow people to make that decision. I think I'm quite lucky in that I work with a lot of organisations and I can choose the organisations I work with. And I have refused to work with organisations who are offering to pay me because I don't believe they genuinely want to do something. I think they want a tick box exercise, mm. done that, that's mm. that bit. That's the women done now. Peace, now we'll go back to our day jobs kind of thing. So I think, I think sometimes there's huge opportunities. And I think the reality is some of the hardest to engage groups, we, we used to talk about hard to reach groups, and they're not hard to reach at all because we know where they are, but they're hard mm. to engage. They need people to, to give time. They need people to give energy. They need people to open the door. And, and I think it's sad if we don't do that. Mm. Laura, you're nothing. Yeah, I agree. And I think if we... we are, I think, with, especially within large organisations, if we're expecting women to work for free, we're not, we're not valuing them, really, are we? we um, of course, if we want to volunteer our time um, to do things for free, um, you know, for charity work, for, for, for doing things that mean something to us, for the things that we... the work that we might do within our schools... Um, However, if, we're, if large organisations are expecting anyone in their organisation to work for free, they are not valuing that person, um, whether she's you know, a man mm. or a woman, mm. or, you know, they really aren't. So I think um, that, again, it's very hard it, it, when you work in large organisations to say no. Um, so we need to empower, and, and coming back to role models, we need to role model saying no more, maybe. Oh, role modelling saying no more. Yeah, I think it's about being discerning. My, yeah. my own view, even though I've written that letter, is that sometimes it's really appropriate to go and, and do things. And um, as someone that starts her own business, I often think, well, is doing this something that I want to do on a personal mm. level to help to give back? Is it something that's going to help me go further, faster with, with the business? But it comes down to, to choice. And I found one of the best ways to navigate that um, as a business, we were running a series of, of free workshops for people who were returning to work after mat leave. Didn't, you know, didn't make a charge for this. There were two reasons for doing it. One was about giving back, and, and one, it was a good marketing tool for us, but it allowed me, with all good conscience, when people approached me for the business to do things for free, to say, can't do that. However, we've got this vehicle. Come and, come and be part of that. And it, and it, and it, con- it contained that, which was, which was good. Chandney, you are a also a woman in business have you done things for free should you do things for free i think i think it's a major give and take i think if you want to be the best that you can be and if you want to be 
um, you want to go to the top. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes you have got to give and sometimes you have got to take. So, for example, when I did last year, around May, I think it was, I did um, a fashion week where I had to pay towards towards the stall. I had to get all the models together and, you know, actually organise it on, on behalf of the fashion show. So it wasn't... Oh, I'm just going to walk in. They're going to be. Able, they, they're going to give it to me for free, and you know, I'll have my stall. I'll be able to sell stuff. I'll be able to use their models. It was a matter of me actually getting all the information, putting a, 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 a and B together to actually make something big. You can't expect things to just happen like in, in a click of the finger. You know, you have got to do things for free, and you have got to put money into something. You've got to invest not only money but time and effort. And it's those three, th- those three points where you can actually make something big, just as if, for example, you were to do uh, an independent, uh, Women's Independence Day speech. Yeah, you might, you, you might not be getting paid for it, but long-term, you're making a lot more people aware that you know, women do have rights and you know, women are, are able to be just as free as men are. And you know, I think nowadays, it's, there's a big comparison. Men can do one thing, I want to be able to do it. It's not about that. You know, men are good at you know, lifting weights, and I'm blooming great on the treadmill but you know you've got to weigh out the odds you know some men are going to be better you know women are great at cooking some, oh come some. on and lots of men are great at cooking too I will not oh, have my brothers my brothers are not it's but, all um, teachable oh no no they've got a left hand oh no you don't talk about brothers um. oh I think that's an example of a woman being her own worst enemy <laughs> oh my yes. goodness I'm going to call it out tonight yes but on, I, I think on the contrary, I, I, I do believe that, you know, yeah, you can teach the opposite gender, but, you know, women have strengths and weaknesses, men have strengths and, strengths and weaknesses, and I think it comes back to role models, and it's them bringing it out of you, like, my mum has, you know, brought out, uh, I'd like to say that I, I'm, I'm a big advocate in women's rights, and, you know, I'm a strong, open-minded person, and that's only because my mum's taught me to be this person and to flourish, because, you know, the, the, world's, the world's oyster, you know, you can only take so much from it. And, you know, it's, it's these big role models in your life that actually make you want to do better and make you want to excel in certain, certain situations. Now, we're coming towards the end of the programme, or at least our time with <coughs> listeners on Radio Verulam. And before we came on air, I was talking about how I had been my own worst enemy recently. And what I need to do is get out of my husband's way, intervene less, and let him step up to the parenting plate. I wonder if my esteemed panellists here could finish by perhaps giving me a really short thought on how they have been their own worst enemy and what they uh, commit to doing differently. We'll see how far we get in the time we've got. Claire... So I think when I started my career, I tried to be what other people wanted me to be and what I thought I needed to be rather than myself. And what I didn't do was play smart. I thought that if I just worked really hard, someone would notice and and give me a promotion. Uh, Whatever the system was, I wanted to fight it. I wanted to, you know, I was that person kind of chaining myself to the fence. And what I realised was the workplace is a game. And if you want to play, you've got to play smart and you've got to learn the politics and then you decide your own boundaries about how much you play or not and, and you own that and you live with the consequences of that. And I think that was probably when I was my own worst enemy, when I was trying to fight the world rather than manipulate the world. I love that. <laughs> Making a smart choice, Claire. Spot on, Laura, I thought. 
Oh, oh we're, 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 out of, we're out of time. So, listeners at home, don't forget that you can listen back to this live broadcast via the Radio Viral and Parent Show podcast series available on iTunes. Thank you for listening and good night.